Old Citizen, The Connection, Chapter 4. And Jesus did help Vera and Rosetta fight the darkness. By the end of the school year there was a miracle. The scales fell from Tori's eyes, and the blind could see. In fact, Tori liked having a little brother to play with, because she was growing up. Then the boys were to spend the summer with Granny and Moody, so Vera got Tracy and Freddie packed to go. It gave Vera a break, and Moody loved having the boys there. Granny did, too, but Moody actually took time off work to take them in the camper, and Granny and Moody's camper had history. As ornery as the pair was to each other, they did some extraordinary things. Back in the day, Granny started her own Girl Scouts for Vera, Ginny, and the neighborhood. It was West Virginia in the 50s, and while the great middle-class expansion after the Great War was one of America's greatest achievements, the advances reverted back to white. Moody still left the house at 5 a.m. and came home around midnight, working as a mechanic by day and janitor by night. Granny cleaned houses and took care of old ladies during the day. However, when Granny ate lunch in the kitchen and read ads in the circular full of blenders, toasters, and Tupperware, the models that displayed them were still white. Turntables of Detroit cars had lovely girls with higher hair, shorter skirts, and ever more revealing bust lines, but as yet there was no variety in skin tone smiling back at her. So it was no surprise Vera and Ginny weren't allowed to join the official troop of Charleston. At first, this wasn't a problem. The troop leaders didn't notice who dropped the new girls off. Granny also took care to shoo them out of her car for a quick getaway. Most importantly, Vera and Ginny were definitely passe blanc, especially Ginny with her good looks, whiteness, and naturally auburn hair. The two curls were also extremely polite and comfortable with anyone, which made their heritage less obvious to the establishment's assumptions. But when Granny arrived after the troop meeting, things got ugly. Unknowingly, the troop leaders looked forward to meeting the mother of the two lovely girls and had even decided to invite her to a luncheon. Late in the afternoon, Granny pulled up in her white V8 Impala. She honked the horn, and her girls ran from the park lodge. Granny got out and closed her door, and left the motor running as the troop leaders' faces fell. After she gave Vera and Ginny their hugs, Granny gave a bigger wave to the two women who stared at her. For a moment they didn't know what to do, but in the end Granny couldn't pass for any kind of white, cream, caramel, or even coffee. Truly, the only white thing about Granny was her car. Get in the car, girls, Granny said to her incognitos. They did, and the troop leaders came over. Granny raced towards them with a huge smile and outstretched hand. Melinda, Granny exclaimed. Why, I haven't seen you in years. Jackie, Melinda answered. She ignored Granny's hand, but managed a polite lady's hug, because they did know each other. "'And who are you?' 
Granny asked Troop Leader Number Two, but for some reason she couldn't move or speak, which made Granny wonder if she was a mannequin. This is Luann, Jackie, Melinda said. Luann, this is Jackie, Vera and Jenny's mother. Luann stayed dumb, and Granny smiled more. The silence held for a moment. Now, Jackie, you know this isn't going to work, Melinda said. Well, I don't see why the hell not, Granny retorted, her smile erased, and Luann actually gasped. I paid my money for my girl's dues, and my girl's got as much right to be here as anyone. And Luann was truly agog now, but in silence. Jackie, I have to say that I agree with you, Melinda began. Good, Granny said. But Melinda was tested. There are rules, Jackie. Whose? was all Granny said. Well, in the bylaws, Melinda stammered. Yes, Luann confirmed immediately. There are definitely rules that we do not have the authority to change without the due course of a petition. Granny stood back in amazement, looked her up and down, and said, It can speak. Now, Jackie, you know we go back a long time, Melinda said. And I will always be grateful how you took care of my mother all those years, especially toward the end. Granny had a whole paragraph ready, but she didn't want to bother. But this is not up to me, Melinda finished, and they all knew that was the line that could not be uncrossed. That statement completely hid the ugliness and injustice of racism, and for some ridiculous reason made the blatant injustice right and unchangeable. The silence that followed proved it. Well, you can both go to hell, Granny said, and left for her car. Luann was vindicated, but Melinda did care. What about your dues? You can keep your damn money, Granny shouted, and opened her massively white door. Maybe it'll do the other girls some good, even if it's too late for your sorry asses. And Granny slammed her door, revved her V8, and peeled out of the dirt lot with an amazingly satisfying amount of dust trailing behind her. That night, Granny waited up for Moody, and they talked into the early morning hours. The next day, they had a scratch pad of activities, destinations, and curriculum planned, and the Wanderers Club was born. The whole neighborhood got involved, particularly Mr. Wilson. He was close enough to White to get through vocational school without anyone noticing. Mr. Wilson passed so well he got more degrees. He ended up teaching at the local college where he met Moody, who used his G.I. Bill to get his degree in agriculture. Moody always wanted to go back to the farm in Virginia, even though Granny wouldn't hear of it. Somehow Mr. Wilson got wind of this and figured Moody needed a backup plan. At night, Mr. Wilson took it upon himself to teach Moody to be a mechanic, and that was what made the little town of Rand tick. Networking groups wove the community together. During summers, they took their schooling on the road, and the wanderers wandered. Children and their parents went on trips, and the kids not only had fun, they learned things black kids weren't taught in school. The elders wanted their kids to know they could do more than clean houses or mop hallways. 
In a few years, the group had more members with money to buy more campers. They turned them into mobile classrooms complete with libraries, chemistry sets, and microscopes. Then, Wanderers, Inc. really took off and expanded past the confines of Rand, Charleston, and the limitations the 1950s had put on the black community. A generation later, Tracy's first memory of the camper was at five. He sat in his car seat that had a steering wheel and horn. It came with rainbow-colored keys, which made a revving sound when Tracy turned them in the steering wheel's ignition. When Moody started his truck, Tracy started his steering wheel, and the piggyback camper took off. Then Moody slipped in his worn eight-track and played Mustang Sally so many times, Granny called it Moody's Blues. But Tracy loved honking his horn with the horn section and revving his keys between verses. They went to the Somerville KOA, just upstream from Rand, and past Mount Nebo. By this time, the wanderers included doctors and professors from West Virginia University and the Technical College. They played educational games and studied astronomy with telescopes bigger than their kids. Doc Henderson's extensive entomological displays were most popular. He collapsed beer cases and pinned up insects the kids caught and identified. Andy helped, and it was probably coincidence the diner owner had a love for bugs. But Doc had the most famous story. He lived in a grand house up the hill from the colleges. Like Moody, Doc had one fear, and they were fishing at the lake when Moody warned him. Be careful them snakes, Moody guffed. But Doc had to go, and he went up the bank into the woods. As soon as he commenced, the pile of leaves he peed on moved. Doc didn't have time to zip up before he hopped back in Moody's boat, which became one of Moody's favorite stories. As for Tracy, his first camping trip included a plane ride, because the World War II vet couldn't resist. How much to take my grandson up? Moody asked. The pilot rattled off figures and explained why the ride was so expensive. But Moody knew how to cut off the game before it started. He also knew exactly what was what from fixing planes in the war, so a lot of cussing went on after that. Eventually, money changed hands, and Moody strapped himself in with the five-year-old on his lap. They circled over the town twice and went over the lake. Then little Tracy wondered if he wanted to become a pilot, which was the point. Moody wanted him to know anything was possible, which was the wanderer's mission, to encourage kids to come up higher from what they could see from the ground. By the late 1970s, however, trips in the camper were more travel and fewer curricula. During their elementary school years, Tracy and Freddie's excursions didn't involve a chemistry set unless you counted the bar set up for Granny's gin and tonics. Moody still played Mustang Sally, although now Telephone Man ran a close second. The trips also didn't include historic sites so much as campsites next to fishing holes. Granny loved to fish, although she got caught. On one of their later trips to the farm in Virginia... Moody wanted to go to the lake one last time. 
the family had broken the land into lakefront lots to sell. Moody was dead set against it, but was overruled. Besides, one of the reasons the farm was failing was because Moody stayed in Rand with Granny. He took his lumps, but Moody wanted to teach the boys to fish where he had learned. It was a beautiful summer day. Tracy, Freddy, Granny, and Moody stood on a skinny bank of soft cobbled rocks that backed up to the woods. The boys were doing well, but Granny wanted to get her techniques across, too. She stood behind Tracy while he tried another cast. Freddy stood next to Tracy, and both were careful to cast on either side. Jackie, Moody warned, don't stand so close behind the boys. I'll stand wherever the hell I want to stand, Granny snarled. Almost immediately, Tracy drew his rod back, and the hook caught Granny's eyelid. Freddy turned, and his eyes got big. Tracy thought he caught his hook on a tree branch, so he yanked. The only thing Granny said was, ow, which made Freddy's eyes bigger. Tracy pulled again, and Granny said, ow, again. Finally, Moody realized what happened. Oh, hell, Jackie, Moody yelled. I told you not to stand so close behind the boys. And Tracy looked. There was Granny with his fish-hook hanging off her eyelid, plain as day. But all was quiet, and Granny wasn't screaming in pain. Even Moody was surprised. All he could figure was her gin and tonics had kicked in to prevent panic, and it was true, that amount of anesthesia would have done the trick. But Moody got Granny to the hospital without incident, except for the arguing. I told you not to stand so close behind the boy, Moody kept saying. And I told you I'm going to do what I'm going to do, Granny stated, and chugged another gin and tonic. Granny was a sight as she stood mixing her drinks on the way. Despite the bumps of the back-ass Virginia roads and the over-pumped shocks of the camper, she mixed just fine. Even with a lit menthol 100 tucked in her lip and a fishhook sticking out of her eye, Granny didn't spill a drop. In the end, Granny's eye wasn't seriously injured, but she had stitches. The doctor gave her an eye patch just like a pirate. The only problem was when she got home. For the next week, Granny couldn't bowl on bowling night. This compounded Moody's misery for the next two Wednesdays, which created billows of cigar smoke. Whenever the pair fought, Granny lit up, and Moody would try to smoke her out. Clouds of menthol came from the kitchen, while Moody's cigars filled the living room, and the boys were forced to crawl outside in search of oxygen. But the earlier trips to the farm in the piggyback camper, they were the stuff of boyhood legend. So, what's it going to be this summer? Vera asked. She sat at the kitchen table with her boys. It was the same wood-toned oval formica table Vera sat at in her teens, surrounded by the same meridian blue walls. The familiar handmade maple cabinet surrounded her with varnished warmth. Although now, a single vertical row of mirrored squares in a diamond pattern signified the 1970s. For the kids... The tiny TV set at the end of the table was the marvel, 
because they were able to eat breakfast and watch TV at the same time. Moody put his newspaper down and smiled, because he loved him some Vera. I thought we'd take the boys back to the farm, Moody said proudly. Granny sighed loudly. You don't need to go if you don't want to, Moody snapped back. Everyone knew Granny's practiced hatred of the farm, but Tracy and Freddy got excited. Did you forget what happened last year? Granny chided. Then she made her arms into chicken wings and flapped a few times toward Freddy. Freddy dropped his spoon in his cereal bowl and ran out of the kitchen screaming. The first time they went to the farm was a revelation for the boys, who were six and seven. They had never seen pigs or horses close enough to smell them. Chickens, though, they were most fascinating, probably because of their size and how freely they ran around the yard. Freddy was captivated, and it cut both ways. The chickens usually minded their business, except when he was around. But Freddy was convinced the rooster had it out for him, which may have been true. The shiny-feathered cock would strut around and follow Freddy everywhere. Then again, Freddy didn't do much to soothe the relationship. One morning, Granny Berger went into the henhouse. She came out with eggs for breakfast, which was wondrous. Most of the family was there for a gathering, and cousins on both Granny and Moody's side attended. Granny Berger went because she loved the farm. She loved the rocking chair on the front porch and free tobacco. She never stopped trying to convince her daughter to give up Rand and move to Virginia, because the senior Mr. and Mrs. Moody had a magnificent home. There was a grand piano in the parlor where couches and settees matched red velvet draperies. Converted brass gas lamps hung from the middle of each room, and the dining room table sat twenty-four on low seats. But the entire Moody house, including the kitchen and attached L for bedrooms, was clearly from the nineteenth century. The exception was the large RCA black-and-white television console in the living room. It worked, but didn't get any channels, which confounded and annoyed the children, much to the delight of the eldest Moody. In fact, by the mid-1970s, the farm, house, and great-grandparents were a vastly foreign world to the boys. But Papa Moody Sr. was born in 1875. He smoked his own tobacco and raised his own food. His dining-room furniture was made from black walnut trees cut on his farm, and the boys certainly couldn't appreciate the accomplishments of the dark black Virginian man, who was born soon after the Civil War. The Moody family started out working in the brick factory. Then Emma taught school along with Richard, and he built the church he ministered. The couple helped everyone live through all the wars and enjoyed the community's respect. Even so, Richard, or Great Papa Moody, was a tall, modest, and extremely quiet man, perhaps because his church, house, farm, and way of life spoke for him. On the other hand, little Freddy was loud, rambunctious, and seven. To him, eggs came out of a carton from the refrigerator. So when Freddy saw Granny Berger go into the henhouse and come out with eggs, he was determined to investigate. 
Once the boys' running cousins were posted and kept watch, Freddy went into the hen house. It was mid morning, so most of the hens were out and about. However, when they saw Freddy, the few hens left inside ran out the opposite end by Tracy. Freddy didn't see any eggs, so he searched the boxes. Sure enough, Granny Berger missed one. When Freddy picked it up, he heard Tracy speak in a hush. He's coming to see what you're doing, Tracy warned, because the rooster wanted to know what had riled his girls. He was definitely not pleased to see Freddy in his house. I ain't scared of him, Freddy countered. Freddy picked up the egg and shook it a little. Then he thought a chick might be inside, so he cracked it open. When the egg yolk fell onto the floor, all hell broke loose. The rooster went after Freddy full bore, and Freddy ran out the opposite door at Tracy's heels. The rooster ran much faster, so he cut Freddy off toward the cornfield. Tracy saw his chance, and he and his cousins ran straightway to the house. But when Freddy made it to the kitchen, his cousins held the door shut for fear the rooster would come in after them. Freddy took off with a scream and headed for the front door, but the rooster passed him and sent him back. Eventually, Freddy got inside, but it wasn't over. The next day, the rooster waited for Freddy to come out of the house. He let the other kids out and didn't bother them a bit. But when Freddy cracked the kitchen door, the rooster charged, and Freddy retreated. Then Freddy crept through the house on hands and knees, so his head couldn't be seen through the windows. When he cracked the front door open, the rooster clucked in Freddy's face and tried to peck him. Little Freddy slammed the door, whimpered, and slunk down in utter defeat. Then there was the low rumble of laughter, which came from the big comfortable chair in the living room. There wasn't a light on, but Freddy heard the understated bass clearly. I told you not to mess with that rooster boy, Great Pawpaw Moody said and his chuckle rolled some more before he went back to studying his Bible. 